Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, February 18th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. It's award season in Hollywood, a time when we take a look back at the best and worst movies of 2018, predict the winners and losers, and even try our hand at the office pool. Well, Inquiring Minds isn't exactly the podcast you typically go to to help you make your choices, but what about the best science stories in film and TV of 2018? To help us figure out which movies and TV are worth watching or watching again, if science is your thing, I spoke to science communicator and Ars Technica writer Jennifer Willette. She's built a career in part on her work covering the intersection of science and culture. She was even the former director of the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which is a National Academy of Sciences initiative designed to provide TV and film writers and directors with the support they need to add a little more science to their projects. Jennifer Willette, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. So we've got awards season just around the corner, and I wanted to talk to you about how science fared in 2018 in terms of film and television. That's part of your current beat, right? Yes, it is. I'm now with Ars Technica, and I'm a senior writer for uh, science and culture, particularly where science meets culture. And uh, as, as you know, I, for a long time, I was a director of something called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. It's a program by the National Academy of Sciences and what they do is science consulting. So I've been following the issue of science in Hollywood for quite some time. Yeah. So where are we in 2018? I mean, I'll tell you from my kind of reading of, uh, of, of, of at least film and television, it seems like there is some push to get things right. I mean, it, it seems like in 2018, at least, there were a number of films and, and a number of television shows that seemed to get more and more accurate where, when it comes to the science. Well, I think this has been going on for a long time. I mean, uh, we founded the exchange in 2008. And by then, I think there was already, I would say, a hunger uh, for more accuracy in film and television, a hunger for real science and, and uh, a passion to actually want to talk to actual scientists while they were creating these shows and movies and whatever. And I think one of the, one of the uh, studios that's been at the forefront of that is Marvel Studios, uh, their president um, has been very, very committed to making sure that even though these are comic book movies 
and their special powers and all these things that are just like completely out, outside the realm of actual real world science. He wanted to make sure that at least the world building was respectful of the kinds of rules that had to be followed in that world. And they took a lot of their ideas and inspiration from science. And I think that's been going on for a while. I think um, medical communities, uh, the medical community in particular, medical dramas have always had science advisors. I think it really started with uh, CSI. That was probably the first time you actually saw science used to help solve crimes. And it led to an explosion of people enrolling in forensics programs, only to discover that it wasn't nearly as cool as on TV. So that, you know, they, there was a huge dropout rate as well. But it certainly did elevate people's understanding of what scientists do, what they look like or can look like. It's not all just old white men now or middle-aged white men. You have scientists of all stripes on, on, on TV and on film now. And you didn't have that like 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I, I kind of look back and see Breaking Bad as another example of a kind of turning point where I'm not a chemist, but <laughs> I think the chemistry was pretty accurate. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I remember chatting with one of their science advisors and she said, in fact, they had to deliberately make it inaccurate because they didn't want people essentially using Breaking Bad as as an instruction manual to create their own meth. <laughs> sure, sure, uh, but it still gives you the 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 kind of the, the main character. You know, really does have a scientific mindset in the sense that yeah, he's you know he's really uh, it's really important to him that everything be done in a certain way. You know, ordered that you take notes that you know you 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 know accuracy in 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 the chemistry is incredibly important to him. Well, and in fact, it is key to his success in as much as he, you can call that success, <laughs> um, that he makes the best meth there is because he's so careful and such a stickler for these scientific details. And in general, you don't get that when you're average meth maker. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what are your kind of, do you have a list of top five films from 2018 uh, that you feel were, you know, kind of either really good films that had some science in them and might be contenders for some awards, uh, or that, you know, are kind of movies that m people might have overlooked, uh, that, you know, you feel the science was, was kind of p played a central role. I would say some of the, the Marvel movies obviously have, are, are always good in, in terms of their science. I think Black Panther was one of the best movies of last year. And one of the standout characters in Black Panther was uh, Shuri, who is who was the sister of the Black Panther, the King of Wakanda, um, where she is actually in this tiny little kingdom that's cut, cut itself off from the world and hasn't been sharing its science and technology. She's like worlds ahead of even someone like Bruce Banner or Tony Stark, who in the Marvel Universe are like the big brains of that particular uh, group. So, I mean, she's there saying, well, you know, look, I, I can save him, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, for, for example, when, uh, when uh, one of the character, one of the human characters gets shot and is taken to Wakanda, she's actually able to heal him. Um, so I think having a young woman who's kind of like smart and sassy and is just better than everybody else in the room ever <laughs> doing science alone is a really wonderful depiction of science on the big screen in 2018. And that would probably be my standout. They always have fun scientific notes, little fun little technologies and things like that that are always fun to, to uh, play around with. But I think the depiction of how science is done and who's doing it is by far the more important. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is coming at a time when, um, you know, in our country, there's a lot of division. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> um, no, no. Skip to slip in the eye <laughs> entirely. <laughs> Never noticed. <laughs> um, and and there's a lot of anti-intellectualism uh, that seems to, you know, be make its way into the media, at least. And um, 
that often takes, you know, give take science takes a hit in that, uh, especially when it comes to thing, you know, topics like climate change. Um, mm-hmm. What what is your what are your thoughts about sort of what Hollywood should be doing? Should they should they be getting in on that argument? Um, what stand did they take in in twenty eighteen? Is there is there a way for us to kind I mean, of? I, th- I think that's an individual choice, mm-hmm. but you know, there are people in Hollywood who take stands on that, and more power to them. I know Seth MacFarlane is very outspoken in in terms of taking a very pro science, pro education stance, especially online. He's very active on Twitter. Um, and I will add that the Orville, uh, which is his like homage to Star Trek, has very, very good science and an excellent uh, science advisor in Andre Bormanis, who uh, cut his teeth in the Star Trek series. So um, I think it's really a personal choice. I think where Hollywood can really have the most impact is what they're kind of doing right now, which is just putting science front and center, showing what science can do and who can be scientists. And, and that's how you change hearts and minds. When it comes to something like, you know, vaccine, anti-vaccines or climate change denial, there's a lot more going on there than just a dislike of science. I think people, I'm fond of saying that science has a lot of fair weather friends. People love science until it tells them something they don't want to hear. Specifically, if it tells them something that challenges a core belief that's like central to their identity. I think what you're seeing with a polarization today, and any cognitive psychologist would tell you this, um, is, is tribalism. People are essentially letting their tribal identities rule everything from politics to their taste in music to movies to what, they, what science they do and do not accept. And that's a problem. And we tend to point to the right wing for this, the, the Republicans, because in recent years they have been the worst offenders. But I live in Hollywood and there's a lot of anti-GMO and anti-vax activity here among the left wing as well. And again, that's a case where your tribal identity is interfering with accepting actual scientific fact. So where Hollywood can help is getting facts out front and center to a certain degree, but that doesn't really help. What they can actually do is help show science doing something good for the world or bad for the world or or something, but they can actually tell their stories and, and advance science and at least a respect for science that way. Yeah. And so that's when, you know, you have a superhero movie in which the superhero relies on science (laughs) to save the world. Sure. And Tony Stark is the best example of that. Correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, his superpower is being really, really smart and able and good at building technology and making these huge scientific breakthroughs. Yeah. And so, you know, on the other side of that, though, there there seemed to be uh, a lot of backlash in 2016 uh, against celebrities who came out in favor of Hillary Clinton. So so how do we what what do you think about sort of, you know, looking forward to 2020? (laughs) um, Do you you know, what do you see? Is is there a trend in, in Hollywood to sort of try to stay more outside of the partisan politics or to, you know, yell even louder? Look, I doubt they're going to stay outside of that. People in Hollywood are people just like anywhere else. They have their beliefs and, and you know, many of them want to use what little influence they have for good. Again, it's an individual decision, but I don't necessarily think anyone's going to step away from that. Um, I, and I don't think that they should. I mean, people are allowed to have their beliefs and be vocal about them, um, regardless of them, <laughs> whether we agree with them or not. Um, I think a lot of the backlash in 2016 was just, Look, that was just people hating Hillary Clinton and hating anyone who aligned. It was tribalism again. And I don't think you're going you're gonna to stop that. I think that's still going to be present in 2020. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. But where Hollywood can, can help, I think, is in bringing people together. I mean, 
I always, when I meet someone who might differ from me in terms of political belief or religious belief, I'm always able to find some common ground. And I know it sounds silly, but believe it or not, HGTV is a great unifier. I can't tell you how many conversations I've been able to start and just get past really awkward moments by just bringing up HGTV and, and talking about, you know, reno porn, as I like to call it. Um, there's just something about it that just appeals universally and finding that common ground is really important. And where better to find that than in film and television? You know, one of the other, we talked about uh, Black Panther, one of the other potential contenders uh, for uh, for awards might be Ready Player One, um, which was a huge box office hit. Uh, so what did you think of that film? You know, I didn't love it. <laughs> That's just a personal opinion. Um, the book was fantastic. And I think anyone who read the book had, had very high expectations for Ready Player One, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and I think what I liked about Ready Player One and the book and what they did in the movie was just bringing up this whole notion of what it's like to live in a virtual space. And it's not that far-fetched. I mean, I, I felt that the in terms of the science and tech in that, you know, it's a little dated because it was an 80s movie, but they, they did a good job updating it and really kind of exploring the human ramifications of what it means to live in a virtual space and why it may not be enough. I think there's a, there's a tendency in certain circles to say, well, eventually we'll all just be uploaded to, to like online to the web and everything will be better. But it kind of was a celebration of both technology and for the fact that the human, the human component, the human body, the physical presence is still somehow essential. So that was a very interesting question. I, I, I like movies that take the science or the technology and really try to explore, you know, the pros and cons of it, because all, all technology is a double-edged sword. All science is a double-edged sword. It can be used for good or ill. So really stopping to think about what the ramifications are of any kind of new science, to me, is, is a worthwhile venue for Hollywood to, to explore. So one of the other, uh, in this case, TV shows, or I guess they're not really TV shows, streaming shows, uh, that has gotten a lot of attention, uh, especially lately, is Black Mirror. Uh, I had to stop watching after season one or two because really why you know it just became it became too it, too, it just kept me up at night it it came, became too <laughs> real too you know especially uh, I had a conversation with um, a woman named Kate Crawford who researches the effect of artificial intelligence and machine learning on society and you know in the middle of our conversation she told me about a policy in China uh, that sort of takes your your social life and makes it a currency uh, so much like one of the episodes of Black Mirror where you know there's like a you know there's this kind of um, program that like, you know, your, your, you know, how many likes you have or how many friends you have on, on Facebook, imagine that now was something that opened or closed doors for you. Uh, and apparently this is already happening in China. Uh, and that, so I don't know, after, after I heard Look, about to that. A lesser, to a lesser extent, it's happening here already. I mean, people, employers do check out your Facebook pro profile. They check out your Twitter feed. If you like, run afoul of, of Twitter in some way, and uh, you can lose your job. <laughs> and also, if you uh, want to get a book published, people are going to look at how many Twitter followers you have. <laughs> right. This is a social, social media is already a type of currency. So I mean, that's, and, and there's, and I think we're finding now that there, there very much is a dark side. That's something that really came to the fore, I think, in 2016, is that nobody had really stopped to think, you know, we, we were all enjoying the perks of, of this constant being online and the social media and these new, these new networks and things and the power that they, that they conferred, the connectivity. But that very same connectivity is also makes us very, very vulnerable to hacking, to the spread of fake news. Um, and it, it can backfire very spectacularly. So there's, there's, again, it's a double-edged sword. It's interesting, the Orville also had an episode 
um, called Majority Rule that kind of looked at that as well, where it was a, a, a um, they landed on a planet where the society was basically like Earth's circa 21st century, where everything was decided by upvotes on social media. Um, everybody was logged in constantly and you basically had to be nice to everybody all the time or they would turn on you and then you'd have to go on an apology tour at all the talk shows and people would vote whether or not you deserve to be forgiven or whether you got lobotomized. I mean, it was a really <laughs> terrible <laughs> idea. And yet, are we really that far away from it? I'm not sure we are. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is the genius of Black Mirror that it takes, you know, it takes a current technology and then it, you know, it, shows it follows it. Right. It, and it follows it to where it could eventually end up if we are not careful. And so I think that's, right. it's, it's called Black Mirror for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, it, it wasn't last year, but I mean, they just released a, a movie called uh, Choose Your Own Adventure movie called Bandersnatch uh, on Black Mirror, which uh, the Ars Technica people, we actually took turns. We, we, we did a choose your own review <laughs> kind of review where we each wrote a review and People could choose how they, which direction they wanted to go. And I thought that was another really great example of, you know, just sort of a high concept thing that Black Mirror took and ran with and really did some interesting things with it. Um, it wasn't quite as much freedom to choose as you might think. It became very clear as I was doing that there were certain choices that, you know, Netflix wanted me to make. <laughs> you know? And they'll keep looping you around till you make the choice they want. So, uh, but that's part of the storytelling. So I actually thought that that was amazing. So, and it, what I like about it too is it's now it's not just about the technology. Now they're actually doing interactive choose your own adventure kind of things with people in their TVs and their remotes. Yeah, this is before we even put the headsets on and, and jump into virtual reality. Right, right. So we're already playing around with these things. So, you know, that kind of a kind of a technique, I, I should say, you know, it is a real departure for Hollywood. I mean, Netflix itself is a is a huge departure in the sense that, you know, you've got I, I really kind of respect the model of, OK, let's spend a bunch of years figuring out what people like and then let's create content for them. I mean, it's kind of genius. I mean, it is genius. That's why it's so successful. Um, and even if, you know, in the end, Netflix becomes only streaming original content, I still think it's going to be a hugely successful company uh, because they know well, now been, what we like. The, the biggest mark of success is how many people are jumping into the streaming business. Mm -hmm. It's I true. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but you know, the Marvel Defender series like Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and Daredevil and all these others started their life on Netflix as like extended miniseries, essentially. Um, and they're one by one getting canceled, not because they're not doing particularly well, but because I think Marvel wants the rights back. <laughs> oh, interesting. I was wondering why they because keep getting Dis canceled. Disney is, Disney is starting its own streaming service. So, you know, speculation in the industry is, is that Disney essentially eventually will bring the Defenders back into the, the Marvel Universe on their own streaming platform. Uh, the Punisher, season two of, of The Punisher is about to debut uh, this weekend. And uh, the joke, I, I've been joking with friends that, yeah, I look forward to it being canceled in two weeks. Now that they've got this out of the way. <laughs> That's so interesting. How is that changing sort of the way that um, ideas get pitched in, in Hollywood? You know, if, if you've got, you know, a kind of a changing model of how these things get funded. Well, it's changed a lot of things. I mean, it's changed for writers and for actors and everything because now the seasons are shorter. I mean, it used to be when you had a TV show, it would be on a broadcast network and you'd be picked up for like, a full season and a full season was like 22, 24 episodes. And if you got on one of those and it ran for like 10 years, God bless you. If it even ran for five and it was, it was eligible for like, you know, syndication, you were, you were like in, in like Flynn. And now that it's just much more fractured. It's like everything else. It's, it's like a long tail. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so there's room for a lot more pitches, a lot more creativity and a lot more different kinds of shows. And there are things that I think get chance, get, get people take chances on things now that would never have had a, a prayer of getting made 20 years ago. But it also means it's, it's, if there's, some, there's some overload. We're at peak TV and it's hard for me. It's my job and I have a hard time keeping up with all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So how do you do it? Do you, do you spend a lot of time watching Netflix? <laughs> yes. Although I, I do appreciate being, being I, I, spend, I watch a lot of Netflix. I, I subscriptions to Hulu, to Netflix, to a lot of these streaming things. I try to get screeners. I keep an eye out for new films and television, particularly stuff that isn't necessarily mainstream. And you want to, there's also some good stuff still on network television. So and there's only so much TV you can watch. You have to pick and choose. And I don't know how people do it when they're not getting paid to do it. <laughs> well, how do you do it? Um, I have to really, I, honestly, I, when I work out, I tend to watch things. I just download onto my iPad and I can actually, it's, it's a way of working out and also getting some of my screen time in so I can still have time to write and like talk to my husband and play with the cats and do the usual things that human beings do. So you're incredibly and I just glued fit. to my TV all the time. <laughs> yeah, um, it must make so you So like very I said, fit. I mean, it's richer than ever the landscape, but it's also easily to be overwhelmed and it's easy to get lost. So you have a lot of smaller hits and a few really big ones. Not everyone is going to be the next Game of Thrones. This show is all about going straight to the source for answers to all of our curiosities. And that's what The Great Courses is all about too. Their in-depth digital video courses are all presented by top-notch experts who are so knowledgeable and fascinating to watch. Now this is making me blush, as you'll hear in a minute. These courses are yours to keep forever, and you can learn completely on your schedule. Now, I had a great time partnering with The Great Courses to create the course Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience. In it, we explored some of the most fundamental misconceptions about the human brain, like, are smartphones really affecting our intelligence? Are other animals conscious just like we are? And can brain games make us smarter? There's so much more too. One of the things that I love about this course is that even though we tackle topics that have been covered before, like is the right brain really creative? What we learn at the end of the course is that, yes, the media seems to be fascinated by some of these topics, but the truth is so much more interesting. And now as we have more and more tools to study the brain, we're getting more and more insights and we're really starting to learn more about ourselves. And now The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special limited time offer. You can order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's over $200 in savings. And you can start enjoying it today. This fantastic offer is only available at thegreatcourses.com slash minds. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash minds. That's thegreatcourses.com slash minds. So from the perspective of scientists, when, you know, what makes a good science advisor and, you know, what does the job really entail? Yeah, this is interesting because I, I remember when I was with the exchange, a lot of scientists would volunteer and we would screen them for a reason, right? <laughs> because eventually, invariably you'd get one person saying, I want to do this because it makes me crazy. You know, when they get science wrong on, and I, in, on, in movies and on TV and I want to like fix this. And I went, yeah, you're, you're, this is the wrong attitude. Because, you know, they're not making documentaries. They're making fictional TV shows. And you want them to be respectful of the science and for the plot to make sense. You want the, the rules of the world building that they're doing to make sense and be logically consistent. But there's very little reason it has to be exactly like our world and everything has to be exactly right. You know, you, you have to let them take some liberties. You know, there's no such thing as faster than light travel and probably will never be, although who knows. Um, 
if we get a theory of quantum gravity, all bets are off. <laughs> Until then, probably not. But um, there are still ways to play with the scientific concepts. And I think what I like best in, in, for, for a science consultant is for the scientist to go in there and say, what is your story? What are you struggling with? You know, what is the plot? And how can I, how can I help you with real science that meets your needs rather than coming in and giving you a lecture? Because if you've ever interviewed scientists, and most of us have, I mean, I started out, I'm still a science writer in many respects. There's, there's an info dump period that they all go through. You just kind of let them get their little lecture out. And then after they finish lecture mode, you could actually start having the conversation. So the scientists who are best at interacting with Hollywood are the ones that kind of understand that the story comes first, that the science is in the service to the story. And when it works, it works beautifully. You know, uh, it ends up being advancing the plot. You know, I think, uh, for example, I think one of the most egregious things that scientists hated was in, in the Star Trek reboot, the first one, they had red matter. And it just, it made no sense. <laughs> Absolutely no sense. And the thing is, they could have done something similar. They could have talked to scientists and figured out a way to get that same effect and, and have that same plot point in a way that wasn't necessarily quote unquote accurate science uh, in terms of what we know today, but would make more sense. Um, so having a science advisor on early would be helpful. Um, more and more, you're starting to see shows keeping science advisors, if not on staff, like the Big Bang Theory has had a physicist on staff from, from day one, at least on speed dial. <laughs> so they can hit them with you know quick questions or things like that. And it works best when the scientist is involved early on. And Marvel, for example, does that. They, they bring scientists in during the script development stage. And that's hugely helpful because it means that you're not just getting called in to do some, you know, quick, we need some like, quick little fun little real technology to like help us over this hump. Um, it's actually helping in the story development. That's, I think, when it works best, kind of a long-witted way of saying. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's in that, you know, what, what scientists can add are, are details that make a project more creative, you know, and more realistic. Right. And it, and it adds to the verisimilitude as well. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly real science, especially when you're dealing with a fictional technology or a fictional breakthrough, but it's got to make sense. The people talking have to sound like scientists. They have to react like an actual scientist would react. Is, is there anything that you have noticed, uh, you know, that that are kind of like pitfalls to avoid that, uh, you know, you, you sort of have these tenets? Like if you see this particular um, thing happen or this, this this kind of, you know, rule broken in a, in a film or television, you know that it, that it's actually going to make the, the, the film or TV show less appealing, you know. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of like, like, for example, you know, if, if a character is too one dimensional, that's just bad storytelling. Is there something like that uh, when it comes to the science that you've noticed? Incorrect jargon, I think, uh, or, or just people sounding, throwing kind of sciencey sounding words together without really understanding, you know, people pick up on that, even if they don't necessarily know the science, something sounds off to them. Um, and this didn't used to be the case, by the way, you get away with all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, like 30 years ago. But audiences have gotten very sophisticated. And believe it or not, even, even though we all bemoan the state of scientific literacy, people know when something doesn't sound right because we deal with science and tech all the time in our lives, even, and it sinks in whether we realize it or not. And we know when it's off. And I think that's another reason why Hollywood has been paying more and more attention to getting science and tech a little more accurate uh, when, they're, when it's on screen. They take pride in it if they're smart. Yeah, there's there's still a Law and Order episode that stays with me to this day. It's probably like 25 years old now, maybe maybe 20 years old, where uh, one of the characters uh, refers to the amygdala 
instead of oh, the no. amygdala. And I swear and I can hear it. that's an easy one, right? Yeah, so easy. And I was like, clearly you did not, you know, run this script by anyone who has any kind you of... Know, the other thing is equations on a blackboard, you know, you can actually, that's a really easy detail to get right, you know, and, and, and really, you know, not, not for, not for, with very little effort, just bring in some like poor physics student, give them a free meal <laughs> from craft services and introduce them to the star. They get to hang out in a set and they get to draw their equations on a blackboard over and over for different takes. Sean did that for Bones for an episode of Bones and had, had a blast. Oh, that's awesome. There is, there is a... I mean, my husband, Sean Carroll, by the way, who's oh. a physicist at Caltech. <laughs> yes. I, I, our our who don't know. listeners are familiar, should be familiar with him because he was on our show <laughs> uh, when he had written Big Picture, which was, it still remains uh, one of my favorite books. Um, so there's also uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, have you watched that show at all? Love that show. <laughs> right. And you have Tony Shalhoub, who plays the, uh, I think, Columbia mathematician. Right. Uh, he's, he's delightful. Yeah, he's really great. And and there's this whole storyline about um, Bell Labs. And, and then, you know, I, I don't want to spoil season two too much for people, but, you know, his son, <laughs> that all works out. Um, what do you think about the science or the math, I should say, portrayed uh, in that show? Uh, and do you think that it was important that he have this, this sort of mathematical background? Uh, or is just that just adding color? Well, I, I like the fact that he had this mathematical background. I mean, it makes sense for that time period and for that community. And this is a Jewish family. And there were a lot of, in the 1950s, a lot of Jewish, you know, scientists and mathematicians who had relocated to New York and you got university housing and, and uh, Bell Labs, of course, was, you know, peaking. It, it, it was, it was, you know, one of the big driving forces in terms of industrial R&D um, developing, and they, but they also invested heavily in basic research. It's a perfect example um, of what, a Jewish scientist or mathematician would be doing. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting because of course, Tony Shalhoub's character, Mr. Maisel <laughs> is, um, is a, is a basic researcher. He's, he's a piece, he does pure academic research. And one of the things that I think those episodes drew out was the conflict that existed at the time between basic and applied research still does to a certain extent, but less so. Cause I think that we've kind of realized that eventually, you know, all basic research turns into applied but at the time, they're two very different cultures, and it was very clear that he had a very hard time fitting in with that culture. He did not understand that culture. He did not understand the secrecy. And again, we can't give anything away, but he runs afoul of them for reasons that are really not his fault. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was really kind of disturbed by that that development at the, at the, in, the, in the final episode that I won't be able to go into because spoilers. But um would make me sad because I actually liked having him be this nice Columbia mathematician. And I hope that the show doesn't fall into this trap of let's screw up this person's life for the plot purposes. Yeah. You know, we need conflict. Yeah. And I, I actually, I also liked how, you know, they really portrayed him as uh, just, you know, abusing his students. <laughs> Which yeah. made me laugh because, you know, that, that is that is something that, you know, science has a problem with. Uh, and Well, mathematicians are the worst and they certainly were in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I uh, that that's it is a show that I will recommend people who uh, like math and like to laugh. I, I do think it has a lot of funny moments. Is there a show or a, a film that you saw in 2018 that you feel did not get the attention that it deserved and that our listeners should check out? You know, I loved The Expanse. Um, it has some of the best science on television. It's probably not everybody's cup of tea because it's really pure space sci-fi. But um, the attention to detail in the science of that is extraordinary. And it actually 
briefly got canceled and then resurrected because there was such a huge outcry over it. So it's getting a second life. But, you know, people should be watching The Expanse. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you... So that it doesn't get canceled again. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So what are you looking forward to in this coming year? Are there openings or or, uh, movies or television shows that you're um, at the edge of your seat waiting to watch? Oh, come on. Final season of Game of Thrones. Well, yeah, duh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to, you know, and you'll say, oh, there's no science in that. But actually, I know for a fact there's a book coming out on the science of Game of Thrones. Um, people have had a lot of fun with the science of Game of Thrones, like figuring out what the what the poisons, what real life poisons might mimic the effects of poisons on the show and things like that. Yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a short article about Hodor's aphasia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can actually find scientific components to it. Um, you can find science everywhere because science is everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely one of the things I'm looking forward to. Um, what am I? Uh, uh, Stranger Things is coming out. What about Westworld? Um, Westworld's coming back. Yes, that's an amazing, amazing show. I'm not sure when that's coming back. It'll probably be later in the year because they just wrapped uh, their their most recent season. And then I don't know if you know that. I don't. I don't know if you know this, but their production site got destroyed by the wildfires. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, wow. So did they have yeah. to stop filming and, or was that already the, se- the season? Like well, they had already... to rebuild. They, oh, they I had see. to do some rebuilding. Uh, I'm a big fan of iZombie, which will also have its final season this year. Um, I'm hoping to do something on epidemiology and specifically the psychological aspects of human behavior in response to, uh, to uh, an epidemic, a genuine bona fide deadly epidemic. Cause I think the, the show really explores where, where we can go as a society if that happens. Um, and there's actually, I'm intrigued by something coming out February 1st on Netflix called Russian Doll that is kind of a time loop kind of thing uh, where this woman keeps dying and coming back. It's, it's basically Groundhog Day, only like really dark. <laughs> <laughs> like if Black Mirror did a Groundhog Day episode. <laughs> if, yeah, if Black Mirror did a Groundhog Day episode, it would be like Russian Doll. <laughs> um, so the reason I brought up Westworld, uh, in fact, uh, is because, you know, your last book, Me, Myself and Why, which I also really loved, uh, was all about how we identify ourselves. And I actually think that that's one of the things that could change a lot uh, with uh, technology, with the advent of of um, virtual reality and and some of these other tools, uh, because all of a sudden we will have ways of looking into our own minds um, that currently don't exist or are very difficult. Um, and I, and 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 Westworld, I feel like, is one of these shows that kind of starts to pose some of those questions um, about sort of you know consciousness in a in a artificial intelligence. And what that means for who we are as humans, right, right. I mean, of course, we don't, we don't, we don't actually know what consciousness is. About the most that can probably be said is that is, you know, there seems to be a broad consensus, you know, not, not uh, unanimous by any means, um, that it's an emergent phenomenon. That it's something about how all those billions, there are millions of billions of neurons interacting and being all connected like that creates this emergent property of a higher consciousness, and we don't really understand how or why. <laughs> Um, and but the series explores that yes what it, what what does it mean for an AI to become conscious what does it mean for an AI to have free will um, it's assumed that the hosts do not have free will and I remember reading an interview with one of the with show creators um, who he said that uh, the character of Maeve who is the Madame uh, in the brothel her first act of true free will. Um, is when she chooses not to leave Westworld and to stay and go find her daughter. Um, but it, watching the hosts grapple with the knowledge that they are 
created and grapple with what it what that means for them. They have, they have thought of themselves as human. They have thought of themselves as being real. And I think what season two in particular did to great effect, often great confusing effect for the viewer. Many people I know had to watch it two or three times <laughs> to figure out fully what was going on. And timelines help. Um, what is memory? You know, and and uh, and how much does that contribute to our sense of self? These are all questions that are at the forefront of cutting edge research in neuroscience. So to see a TV show really taking a big philosophical deep dive in exploring the issues of sense of self and memory and identity and consciousness and AI in the context of AI um, is very interesting to me. Um, I mean, it's very clear that the, that the that Bernard, not Bernard, but uh, Anthony Hopkins character who created Westworld basically thinks that humans should be extinct and the host should take over. It's a very interesting take uh, on on that, that maybe the technology can be better than us. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to say, um, I was so I haven't watched season two of Westworld yet, um, because I, I I got pregnant and had a baby this past year and d- discovered oh, Breaking Bad. <laughs> I highly recommend a timeline. Yes. And I, I figured there I was... It jumps back and forth a lot and it is not always clear. And so when you haven't slept very much, uh, there's no way that I could make <laughs> sense of it. Um, but thank you. But um, but but the first season, I have to say, I was I, I was more impressed with how consciousness and these sort of deep neuroscientific questions were handled in that show than I have in any other show I've ever seen. I was I, it really it kind of it made me feel like I was in my you know introductory psychology class again and thinking about these things for the first time. And that kind of feeling of profound, you know, discovery of of how cool uh, psychology and, and sort of neuroscience can be. Um, you know, and it's a TV show, you know, so I, I was really impressed with it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's season two, I think, got uneven reviews, but I thought it was really good. I thought that it was, you know, it's it's a it's a very odd show. And again, it's possibly a show that could not have been made 30 years ago. So why do you think they chose this kind of, you know, this I, I, I did um, read about the fact that there's a timeline and that, that that helps. Why do you think that the creators of the show made it kind of that intractable? Well, I'm not sure they're trying to make it intractable, but they're trying to do something profound with the notion of timelines and memory and kind of sort of being, I don't know if you know this, uh, the, the other thing that I thought was really a, a wonderful uh, show last summer was Castle Rock, which is an, an anthology series based on the works of Stephen King. And they had one episode that focused on an aging mother, a character who has dementia. And it's described as being unmoored in time. She's become un, like, she's, she, she doesn't know where she is. So she's literally talking to someone in 1990 and then finds herself in the present or finds herself somewhere else. And she's never quite sure how she got there. She's walking from the past to the present and back again constantly. And she uses chess pieces to ground her. I think that similar thing is going on, particularly in season two of Westworld. And that's a very interesting take because there's been a lot of damage in particular to, to at least one of the hosts and Bernard. And we're looking at it, through, we're sort of looking at the, he's the prime narrator for this season, it seems. And he doesn't remember. His memory is, is fractured. In fact, one of the plot points is, he, you know, he's been damaged in some way. And so he's basically is not sure. We're looking at it from his perspective and he's not sure when is now. He, you know, when is now, he's not sure. And so it's keeping track of where he is in the timeline is, is a bit of a challenge for both him and for the viewer. It's a way of letting us experience what the disorientation that he's experiencing. So I think 
artistically, it does make sense, but it also makes it a very challenging show. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's kind of the tragedy of dementia is that is that, you know, that we when everything is is functioning well, we, we take things for granted, like I know when is now. Uh, and when that goes awry, you know, it's very disorienting. Right. And it's not memory per se, because he remembers stuff fine, but he doesn't remember when stuff happened and in what order. And he's not entirely sure where he is at any given moment. So one last question for you. If you had to choose uh, an award for best film uh, 2018, where, who, who would get the Academy Award? Oh, it'd be Black Panther. I just, I just loved that movie so much. And I know it's, you know, it's not just a superhero film. It really isn't. Um, I thought there was so much going on in that show. It was just an objectively just a, a perfectly well-made movie. It was an entertaining ride and it had great use of science and technology. And it, I think it really explored also, you know, this was a, the Wakanda community hoarded, did not share its, its, its science knowledge and its technology for a very, very long time. And the very final scene is the new king of Wakanda saying that we're now going to share our resources. And everybody kind of laughs at the UN thinking, what, they're cows, they're sheep? Because they have no idea that they have maglev trains <laughs> and medical technology that far surpasses our own. So it's, to me, I, I felt that it also looked at social responsibility, you know, what it, you know, how do we use our science and technology and how can it best be used for good or ill? So all those things together, I think, made Black Panther my favorite movie of the year, although there were a lot of really good ones. It's, it's, it was a really good year for film. Well, Jennifer Ouellette, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another episode. I wish you all the best of luck in your office pools for this awards season in Hollywood. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds you can get an ad-free version of this show there. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, what you thought were the best film and TV shows from 2018 that had to do with science or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.